0: Would you turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 6? Um, We're going to really be, I'm really going to be preaching from Judges 6, uh, 7, and 8, um, so you can be ready to read along in that story with me, but I'm going to begin by reading verses 11 through 16, which says this. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite. While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my lord, if the Lord is with us, Then why has all this happened to us, and where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian? And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, make your name holy now in our homes in this time of worship. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. So I'm going to be preaching uh, three messages, uh, a series looking at, at three different Israelite judges. And the time of judges uh, is a, a dark time in Israel's history. So I had a little hesitation beginning this series just a few days after Christmas. I wondered would it would it clash with all of the warmth and joy of Christmas. And then I remembered the true Christmas story. The actual one, especially what happens right after Jesus's birth when these wise foreign kings follow a magical star to find the newborn king with the best intentions. However, they ask the wrong man for directions with the unintended consequences of tipping off the evil king Herod, who doesn't want another king in his nation. So he orders a mass murder of all the little boys in the area two years and younger, forcing Jesus and his family to become refugees from their homeland. This is the darkness that the light of the world was born into. It's precisely because it's so dark that we need his light. Christmas shouldn't be rose and sage-colored glasses. Christmas is a sobering reality of how low our God had to condescend, which brings us the greater joy of Emmanuel, God with us. This is who Christ is to us. In this world in which there will be trouble, we need not fear because Jesus is with us and he has overcome the world. And that is precisely the message that we need to hear as we enter into this new year. That's exactly the message that God communicates to Gideon. So clearly and powerfully and consistently, it is the truth that anchors our souls in turbulent waters. God with when God calls Gideon, Israel has been through seven hard years of oppression by the people, uh, the Midianites, uh, by Midian. Not just one really bad year, seven really, really bad years. And they cry out to God because they are weary and burdened and afraid including Gideon who is hiding from the Midianites as he is working in his crops because he's he's afraid of them. And God calls him to be a deliverer but puts all the emphasis on himself on God himself rather than on Gideon. Listen to what God says each time he speaks to Gideon. First he says, "The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor." And then Gideon questions how this could be so, and God responds, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And then Gideon explains how underqualified he is, and God responds, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. All three times God speaks to him, he emphasizes his presence and power with Gideon. This is is God's answer to Gideon's questions. Questions that we too have at times. Gideon asks, how could God say he's with him when their nation has suffered so badly for so long? And he says in verse 13, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. I preached my first funeral last week, just days before Christmas, and I imagined that that seemed like a a strange dissonance to that family. I tried to help them see how the truth of Christmas, though, is exactly the truth they need, because Jesus didn't come at Christmas and immediately remove us from this broken world. He came at Christmas and joined us in it to be with us. We sometimes wonder why God doesn't just end suffering. But Christmas means that though we may not know the full reason, we know that whatever the reason is, it doesn't it's not that he doesn't care or that he's distant. God hates suffering and evil and death so much that he was willing to come into it and take it onto himself. So Christmas is solace to us in suffering because in it we see God's willingness to enter into this world of suffering, to suffer with us and to suffer for us. He came to be with us. And what I love most about Gideon's story is is that when Gideon feels inadequate to live up to uh, who God's calling him to be, God doesn't reassure him the way uh, most people would by saying, oh, that's not true. Don't be so hard on yourself, Gideon. He didn't inspire him with self-help and self-empowerment by telling him just how strong he really is. Instead, God reassures Gideon by redirecting his gaze from his powerlessness to God's infinite power with the promise, I will be with you. Look again at verse 15 and 16. Gideon says, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midians as one man. What we need most when we feel weary and afraid and inadequate is to look to God and his precious and very great promises, knowing that he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We need to believe the incredible message that Jesus Jesus is who God said he was when he was called Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. And when Jesus resurrected from the dead, with all authority in heaven and earth given to him, he gave us a high and holy calling, along with a promise. He promised us, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. This is what Gideon needed to know when he questioned his own adequacy to face what's next for him and and what God had called him to do and what God has for him, he needed to know that God is with him. In other words, it doesn't matter who you are. You are not the important part of this equation. God is with you. And he sees who you are By his transforming grace, when he looks at you, he sees who you can and will become by his presence and power with you. That's why he calls Gideon a mighty man of valor. Gideon has done nothing mighty. In fact, he's fearful, and some might even say cowardly at this point in the story, as he's hiding from the Midianites in his work. But God sees beyond our weakness. He knows what we can become in his strength. He speaks a new identity over us. And this is why he calls us saints, even though we sin. He speaks the truth about us into existence. He patiently cultivates faith in us through his consistent promises to be with us. And this is what he did with Gideon. So let me tell you the rest of Gideon's story a story of God with a man to see what we can learn from it. So I've already told you about Israel's oppression uh, there by Midian and how God calls Gideon to deliver them. And so let's pick up from there because what's the first order of business that God has for his new deliverer? It's not what you might think. He doesn't have him head right out and take on the Midianites. He has him start... By destroying his family's idols. In verse 25, God tells him to tear down his father's altar to Baal and to build an altar to God in its place. I think this is important for us to take note of. The priority for God, even above the physical deliverance from oppression and suffering, is the spiritual deliverance from idolatry. God wants to purify their religion, purify their faith. He's addressing the true source of this mess that they've gotten themselves into. We can have all kinds of of hopes and aspirations and even prayers for this new year, but we need to have our priorities aligned with God's. He cares about our hearts and the purity of our faith and allegiance to him first and foremost. And so Gideon does this. He, he, his, his fear doesn't just magically vanish. He's still afraid, but he obeys. He just does it at night. So, uh, but, of course, the, the people find out in the morning what has happened, and they angrily come to Gideon's father, Joash, wanting to kill Gideon for destroying their, their uh, idols. But Joash says, Gideon's father says, Will you contend for Baal? Remember, this is Joash's thing that he destroyed. But he says to these people, will you contend for Baal? If he really is a god, let him contend for himself. Which makes sense to the angry Baal worshipers. So they perhaps spitefully nicknamed Gideon Jeroboam, meaning let Baal contend against him. But then we get to what we're all anticipating after this. Uh, idle destruction, and the enemies come knocking, the Midianites, the oppressive and menacing Midianites, along with others of their allies. They come and they set up camp alongside of Israel. And God, he gives Gideon favor among the tribes all throughout the nation, and they come out to follow him. And Gideon amassed a small army ready to face the massive army of Midian. But Gideon's fear, again, bubbles to the surface. And let me read you what happens next, starting in verse 36. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me just test once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. So you may have heard about this before, the the fleece test. What's going on here? Gideon gives God this test to make extra sure uh, that this is what God wants. Uh, But notice, Gideon already knows what God wants. He says, if you you listen, he said, "That that that, that I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. God said it. That should be enough for Gideon. And he knows that he's not being wise here. That's why he says, let not your anger burn against me. Please let me test just once more. So some people use this as a uh, kind of a a backup for their own testing of God to see what God wants them to do. They say, I'll be like Gideon and I'll say to God, um, if you give me this sign, then I'll know I'm supposed to go down this path. But that's not really what this is, because Gideon already knows clear as day what God wants him to do the path that lies before him. So what is he really asking for? What's he really testing God for? Well, he wants reassurance that God is on his side, first of all, and, and that God is powerful and in control. He's afraid and he needs reassurance. And even he admits that this testing uh, when he's already heard from God is, is not really a smart idea, but he's afraid. And I love that God gives him this reassurance that, that, that he is for him and that he's powerful and in control. God is gracious, God. And we too, we need reassurance when we're afraid or reluctant or are on the verge of taking hard steps of obedience. But we have a sign, a sign far greater than some wet fleece. God has proven in the most powerful way possible that he is for us and that he is powerful and in control. Through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we look to the cross and the empty tomb as our assurance that God calls us to follow him. That, that he is with us and that he is for us as he calls us to follow him. That he is powerful and in control. As, and as we look to the cross and the empty tomb, it bolsters our confidence and gives us courage and peace. Jesus' death and his resurrection from the dead is God's sign to you, of his commitment to you, as we live out who he's calling us to be. And so once Gideon was assured of this and and is ready to lead his little army, well, God throws him a curveball. And he says, actually, Gideon, it's not quite little enough. In the beginning of chapter 7, verse 2, God says, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. You see what he's saying? God doesn't want there to be any chance that the people of Israel think they did this on their own. He knows how prone to pride the human heart is. A small army against a big army might just make them feel super good at war whenever they win and puff them up so that they think they don't really need God after all. So God purposefully weakens Gideon's army. Isn't that interesting? He has Gideon send home everyone who is scared first, which reduces it down from 32,000 to 10,000, which is pretty significant. But then he takes it even like way further and he narrows the army down to only 300 men, sending away everyone who drinks water like a normal person. (laughs) He only keeps the 3% of the people that are weirdos and drink like dogs. And with his minuscule army of brave weirdos, God is finally happy. In verse 7, the Lord says to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. And this is really significant for us to learn from. This, this whole thing that, that God, again, he's showing us his, his priorities and his ways are just so different than ours. He knows that, that we are nothing without him. And he also knows that the best condition of our hearts is when we recognize that and when we really feel it. God chose to weaken Gideon's forces because he wanted him to lean on him and depend on him and give him the glory. And if that is their goal, then this newfound weakness is actually a strength. It depends on what your goal is, what you're aiming for. If our aim is greater dependence on God and greater glory for God rather than ourselves, then weakness is transformed into a strength. Just last week, that's Saturday, my little daughter, Evergreen, she had a a bout of of brattiness, uh, the kind of fit, the real bad kind, where she's screaming about something and and her voice gets a little raspy to where it kind of sounds evil. I hope somebody else can relate to that. But really, it was kind of the crescendo of a week of, of, of uh, rebellion. And I felt uh, if so many times uh, just utterly powerless as a parent. I recognized my complete incompetence as a parent and, in a way that I usually don't. I felt deeply my inability to help this little girl become a good person, a person who's not a rebellious brat. I just knew I could. I, I didn't know, even know what to do. I, could, I knew I couldn't do it. And that night, Audrey and I prayed. We prayed for ourselves as parents and, and for Evergreen, as a person before God and her future and for God's grace And we prayed with a dependence and a a longing that, honestly, we don't pray with enough. Our weakness, our need, it drove us to the only true source of hope and health. If our goal is some level of success where we get recognition, look at this great kid I raised, then any level of weakness will fill us with shame or anxiety But in God's eyes, weakness is often just what he's looking for. He may intentionally weaken your forces, weaken you. And when he does, this story should have us rethink what he might be doing in our lives. In faith, open your heart and your mind to what God is teaching you, the life-giving lesson of leaning on him, leaning into him. Because this is what God does for Gideon. And, it, and so it, after he learns this, it's time to move against Gideon. In verse 9, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid go down, uh, to go down, if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Peoria, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Now, I kind of giggled when I read that uh, uh, a couple of months ago, because God, he knows Gideon so well. He gives Gideon two options, right? Well, option number one, go ahead, right now, go down against the Midianites and with your 300 men and get victory. Option number two, and this is only if you're afraid, Gideon, you can go down with just your servant and scope out the enemy and receive some extra assurance of your victory of which I've already promised you. Which option do you think Gideon chose? That's right. The old scaredy cat chose the scaredy cat option. But I just love how God mercifully gave him that option. He's so kind to Gideon. He patiently provides for Gideon's faltering faith. That's a sweet message to me. Our fears Our anxieties, our hesitations, our reservations, they don't disqualify us from God's great work among us. God is in the business of making us courageous as he uses us and calls us, not simply calling and using people who are already courageous. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he is shaping Gideon as he uses this this option number two, where Gideon goes down to the Midian camp, and he overhears one of these soldiers telling his dream that he just had to another of uh, his soldiers, to his comrade. And this dream is about a loaf of bread that rolls into the camp and knocks down a whole Midian tent somehow. And his friend hears that dream and says, A loaf of bread? That's got to be Gideon! (laughs) And so he says, God's given him, us into his hands. And when Gideon hears this, he worships and goes back to tell his troops. And he tells them to get ready to go. And this dream, it does strike me as a very humbling experience because he's being called just a measly loaf of of bread, not a lion tearing down the Midian tent, right? Just a random loaf of bread, not even wheat bread, just like barley bread. And And he bumps into the tent and it collapses, it's a humbling picture of Gideon, but it's not insulting. In God's economy, a humble view of ourselves is a healthy one and a good one. We are rolling loaves of bread when God uses us. And Gideon gets the point. He encourages and has, he, he encouraged, he's encouraged and he has fresh resolve. And he, he goes and he, he rounds up his troops and he tells them the plan. Even though the victory is God's, Gideon has a plan. He doesn't doesn't say in this story that he gets this plan from God. I personally think he had some inspiration from the old story of of Joshua and the walls of Jericho. We know he's familiar with the old stories because he he talks about it, right? When God first called him, Uh, uh, he talks about the stories of God's deliverance. Well, anyway, so this is what Gideon does. He takes his 300 men. And he divides them into three groups of 100. And he gives every man three things, a trumpet, a jar, and a torch. And then they went outside the the, uh, Midian camp at night, which Gideon loves to do stuff at night, and uh, all 300 men blow their trumpets, smash their jars, revealing their torches, and they raise their torches and say, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And then they just stand there, while panic sweeps through the Midian army and they start killing one another and then they flee in fear. And the victory is theirs. The victory is God's. And this is where we all wish the story would end. So much so that we sometimes act like it ends here. We don't bring up the next chapter. We don't want to talk about that. Right after God delivers a victory where Gideon stands still with only 300 men, that's not good enough for Gideon. He calls more people to form a bigger army, and then he actively pursues the Midian kings, chasing them through neighboring countries and, and neighboring leaders. They refuse to help him in his vendetta, and so he swears vengeance on them too, which he later enacts. And when he catches the Midian kings, he tries to have his young son kill them out of revenge. But when he's too afraid, because he's young, a little boy, he does it himself. Gideon does. And then it gets worse. Israel says in verse 22, rule over us, Gideon, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon says to them, I will not rule over you and my son son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Okay, so that sounds good, which he's saying the right words. But he's either pretending or he's self-deceived because he immediately starts acting like a king. He even names his son Abimelech, which means son of the king. Matthew Henry once wrote uh, regarding the evil king Ahaz. He said, secret disaffection to God is often disguised with the color of respect to him. And this is true of Gideon. Giving lip service. and You secretly don't really respect. And, and he has, then Gideon has the people give him gold and kingly garments from the, from the kings of Midian, which he uses to make an ephod. And, and the text tells us that all Israel whored after it, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. An ephod was a priestly garment. There was only supposed to be one in Israel. The point is that he distorted religious practices to make it about him, and he made an idol to his own pride and glory, and it led the people astray. How did he go wrong, so wrong, so quickly? It's because he stopped being awed and humbled by the fact that God is with him. God with him stopped being the most important and significant thing about his identity. His own feelings, his own goals became more significant to him and held more sway in his mind and heart than God's presence and plans. He became vengeful and self-deceived, ungrateful and arrogant. And it led to his downfall and to the downfall of the nation. The saddest thing about all of this, though, to me, is seeing what he traded away. He had an intimate relationship with God in chapters 6 and 7. But the presence of God is conspicuously absent from chapter 8, isn't it? All throughout the story, in in chapter 6 and 7, Gideon is fearful. He had doubts, and he had misgivings. He was anxious and burdened. But how did God treat him then? How did God treat this lack of faith? With gentleness and with patience. By drawing near and making a way. But when Gideon becomes less fearful, which many people, and from many people's perspective, might look like personal growth, But he replaced his fear not with confidence in God, but with confidence in himself. And he trades away his helpless dependence on God. And with it, he trades away an intimate relationship with God. And he gains a legacy of despair. The Bible says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We see both truths in Gideon's life, don't we? Gideon, he became proud. He became a hypocrite, a Pharisee. Hypocrisy in the Bible is the gap between this public persona and private character. He outwardly gave lip service to God, didn't he? But inwardly, his heart was not in fellowship with him. And I think that Gideon's story is an encouragement to us and a bit of a correction to us regarding uh, uh, hypocrisy. Because in in chapter 6 and 7, when Gideon was living with God, he struggled with doubt and with fear. And many of us, with, with persistent uh, failings like this, would feel like hypocrites as we've tried to follow God with a heart that's torn in a different direction. When, when Gideon was living with God, his particular vice was fear. And I'm sure that's the same for some of you. But many of us face other sins and manifestations of faltering faith that we can't seem to be to to be rid of though we desire to. And and many Christians fear that trying to live for God and do the right things without the perfect right feelings makes them a hypocrite. Like when we struggle to forgive unless we really feel like we've forgiven them or struggle to give unless we can do it with perfect cheerfulness or struggle to repent unless we feel really bad and sorry or struggle to, to praise and, and pray unless we're feeling really spiritual. I think this, this comes from the a right idea that our faith is supposed to be more than just going through the motions, but taking steps of obedience, listen to me, taking steps of obedience, even on your worst feeling days, that doesn't make you a hypocrite. That's not hypocrisy. That's faith. It's natural as weak and imperfect people walk with and live with a perfect God. And as we do that, live with him, our hearts will grow in alignment with our obedience. But God sees you as what you can and will become by his spirit working within you. As we, we, we grow, we will grow into alignment though perhaps slower than than we would like. But God will be patient with you, as he was with Gideon. You only become a hypocrite when you give up on aligning your heart with God's heart, and you settle for letting other people think that you are holy. And that matters more to you than who God knows you to be for real. And this happened in Gideon's life when this switch happened when he became successful. His successes, even though they were gifts from God, in his mind they overshadowed his weaknesses and his need for God. He shows us that our strengths can be more destructive to us than our weaknesses. Gideon was actually strongest when he was weakest. This is why the Apostle Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? Because that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Because Christ said to him, to the Apostle Paul, when he had prayed for for relief, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul goes on to say, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness insults, hardships, persecution, calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Gideon's story shows us God's patience and powerful presence with powerless people of faith, even when that faith is weak. But it also shows us his tragic absence from people who choose to live on their own, even when they give lip service to Him. It doesn't matter who you are, or what you've done, or what you can and cannot do. What is significant at this moment is God's presence with you. And whether you are humbly receiving His gift of grace and desperately depending on Him alone, being invited into this this kind of utter dependence... And, and, it, and desperate dependence. It's going to bring questions into our, our lives like Gideon had. God knows this. He knows that we long for assurance. And he has given us the ultimate sign that he is for us and that he is with us. We don't need to wonder. We have the cross of Christ he did not spare his own life in his commitment to us. And we, so we don't need to seek for signs or wonder if he is in control or if he is present because we have the empty tomb. Jesus rose from the dead with all authority in heaven and on earth and he promised us, he promised us, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I will never leave you nor forsake you. May we live in this faith. Let's pray. Holy Father, we know that we are weak and that we need you. But we also know that you are with us, that your presence with us determines our worth and value and what we can become by your spirit and power at work in us and through us. We thank you for sending your son to be Emmanuel, God, with us, and the hope and assurance that this provides. Lead us now. Lead us out of and away from the temptation to live life on our own terms and for our own selves. And deliver us into the wonder and intimacy of a life lived with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.